Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from the Irish Story website. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we are so grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. On this episode, we're going to be looking back at the life of Ian Paisley, former First Minister of Northern Ireland, founder of the Free Presbyterian Church and the Democratic Unionist Party, and one of the most controversial politicians in Irish history. To discuss the Reverend Ian Paisley, we're very pleased to be joined from New York by Ed Maloney. Ed is the former Northern editor of the Irish Times and the Sunday Tribune. He has written for a wide variety of newspapers and magazines in Ireland, Britain and the United States. Ed's books include Secret History of the IRA and Voices from the Grave. He co-authored a biography of Paisley with Andy Pollock, and in 2008 he wrote Paisley, from demagogue to democrat. Ed, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, Ed, could you tell us about the evangelical political Protestantism that Paisley represented? Like, what were the traditions that he was following in and how did Paisley differ to the types of loyalist figures that had come before him? Um, well, actually, he's very much in the, in the tradition of unionist and fundamentalist Protestantism that characterised um, what later became Northern Ireland. You know, during the latter part of the 19th century, you, you had this massive revival, uh, which was uh, started in the United States of America and made its way across the Atlantic and came to Ireland. And you had these massive uh, meetings and gospel meetings of one sort or another people being converted in sort of like mass hysteria. And, and that sort of set the tone for the politics of the latter part of the 19th century as well in Ireland, when you had the Home Rule movement coming to something of a bit of a, a climax in the later part of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century. And uh, Paisley was very much a product or a byproduct of that phenomenon. His, his father was uh, a Baptist uh, minister uh, so he came from the Baptist tradition, which is important, uh, given his later manifestation as a sort of variant on the Presbyterian faith. And his mother also was uh, a very strong-willed fundamentalist who came from the south of Scotland and came over to Ireland and, and met his, his father and married, and they had, had these uh, two boys. And Paisley was the product of this period, very much so. He was born five years after the creation of the Northern Ireland state. His father had been a member of Carson's UVF. So that memory was very fresh in his mind as he was growing up. The UVF was not something as it is now uh, associated with, you know, faded photographs and uh, old movies. It was something very live uh, and living as far as he was concerned. And he came from, from that tradition it um, was his trademark and it characterised his politics and his religion for the rest of his life. And Ed, can you talk a little bit about Paisley's idea of an Ulster identity? Was it mostly a religious kind of formulation? Did it have a national aspect? And how did kind of Irish nationalism fit in in Paisley's kind of worldview? Well, Irish nationalism didn't really fit in in that sense. I mean, the Irish nationalism was regarded as, um, you know, the religion of the enemy. 
It was potpourri, it was superstition, uh, it was smokes and candles and stuff like that, and, and entirely foreign. The religion that Paisley was brought up in was a very fundamentalist, basic religion, in which the only uh, book that mattered was the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament. Um, unlike the Catholic Church, which uh, you know had um, all sorts of um, theological offshoots and manifestations of, of the Catholic faith, uh, the religion that Paisley was brought up in, and indeed most of his co-religionists and, and fellow uh, Northern Ireland Protestants, came from the same sort of tradition. Very simple, basic Bible Protestantism is what they believe in. But that doesn't mean to say that there was a uniform attitude towards uh, religion in the Protestant faith. I mean, uh, the Presbyterian Church was riven with all sorts of divisions as Paisley was growing up and becoming, uh, first of all, a teenager and a young man and then a preacher in his own right. And you had uh, enormous schisms inside the mainstream Presbyterian Church over attitudes towards um, a, a liberal uh, moderator called Ernest Davy who was questioning things like the virgin birth. And, and these were uh, aspects of, of uh, the Presbyterian faith, which until then had never been questioned. People just automatically believed that such a thing was possible. Davy being a much more rational person, sort of was questioning it. And that led to uh, an enormous um, division inside the Presbyterian church. And Davy was, was put on trial. And this was all happening as Paisley was becoming a, a teenager and a young man, and it affected the way that he, he formed his own religious opinions. And uh, the Presbyterian Church was divided very uh, strongly between pro and anti-Davy uh, factions. And the anti-Davy faction uh, either made their peace with the church or in many cases uh, left the church and set up uh, splinter groups of one sort or another. And it was in that atmosphere that Paisley's uh, own brand of Presbyterianism uh, prospered and, and that's where he found his his roots and that's where his his church was uh, was built upon those foundations so it was very much a divided Presbyterian uh, and Protestant community in Northern Ireland at that time and you you had also development of uh, ecumenical movements both political and religious but particularly political you had the Catholic Church for example undergoing all sorts of questioning. Pope John XXIII called Vatican I, and there were various reforms that followed it in that wake. Uh, women were treated differently after, after that uh, Vatican Council. Not that much differently, but certainly differently. Other aspects of the Catholic Church were, or Catholic dogma uh, were softened. You know, the old image of, of the Pope being carried around on a big throne with a great big crown on his head, you know, that, that faded, that, that went away and the Catholic Church became much more modernized. And you had beginnings of the ecumenical movement and the ecumenical movement was regarded by fundamentalist Protestants as a great threat to their own faith because they saw their own religious leaders, particularly in the mainstream Presbyterian Church, uh, responding to overtures from the Catholic hierarchy and from Catholic uh, leaders. And they saw only danger in this. And Paisley was there to capitalize on that and warn that this was a road which was a very dangerous road that was going to lead to the dilution of, of their faith and their beliefs. And essentially to the takeover of Protestantism by a, a sort of bastardized semi-Catholic type of religion. So those were the circumstances in which Paisley was growing up and which he became a minister and subsequently a political leader. And these various religious changes were being mirrored in, in the political world as well. You had, um, well, you had a sort of religious ecumenism going on. You also had the stirrings of a political liberalism within unionism. You had Captain Terence O'Neill, who was a sort of rational uh, unionist leader who realized that you know, it was time for change and that you had to treat people like Catholics on a much more equal basis if you were going to have a decent society, et cetera, et cetera. And he was reaching out in a very timid way, admittedly, to the Catholic Church and to Catholic schools and Catholic leaders. But that was all alarm bells ringing as far as Paisley and his followers were concerned. And it was in the atmosphere of distrust, suspicion, anger, and that was widespread within the Protestant community. I mean, it wasn't a minority, it was quite a substantial 
number of unionists and, and Presbyterians and Baptists, what have you, were all fearful of where uh, O'Neill was taking uh, unionism. And Paisley was there at the right time. He was uh, God's man for the moment, as they said. Well, Ed, I was just going to ask you about an interview that Paisley did at the end of his career with yeah. Eamon Malley. And Malley was putting all these questions to him about the validity of the complaints of Catholics living in the North at the time, about gerrymandering and discrimination and housing issues. And Paisley was agreeing with him and saying, well, that was awful in Derry and it was awful about the job situations with county councils in Fermanagh and Tyrone. It does bring home to you in a lot of ways the cynicism of the campaign that you fought in the 60s. Well, yeah, people people have made uh, have made that comment. There's, there's no doubt about that. But I, I think at the time that he was leading the opposition to O'Neillism and the opposition to reformism within the Northern Ireland state, uh, I think he genuinely did believe that type of thing. And there's, there's no doubt in my mind either that he went through all sorts of changes as as his life, you know, reached its end. And, um, you know, he became a, fi a, a figure of, of respectability. He was no longer uh, regarded as a madman or, or as a dangerous person or someone who was uh, an obstacle. He was regarded as helpful. He was made a privy councillor. Uh, he was welcomed in, you know, the highest levels of, of government in Britain and Ireland and America. And, you know, all, all this affects people, you know, uh, and Paisley was, was no different from anyone else. But I, I think at the time that, you know, he was leading the opposition to O'Neill and leading the opposition to sharing power with Catholics, I think he genuinely did believe that philosophy. And it was only later, of course, that, you know, uh, when, when uh, he made the deals that he did make to get into power, that he changed. And also there's the influence, I think, you know, it can't be neglected, the influence of his wife Eileen, I think, was quite considerable. And there were always strong women in, in, in his life. His, his mother was a very, very strong woman, uh, much stronger than, than his father. And Eileen, I think, played a similar sort of role to his mother in the sense that, you know, he, you know, giving him advice and steering him from here and there and out of various difficult situations. And guiding him, I think she was always there in the background. You know, it's a famous photograph of of him uh, on the day that they took power in, with Martin McGuinness in the Northern Ireland Assembly, and he's outside at a microphone talking to the assembled press. And in the background, you can see Eileen holding her handbag and obviously nervous about what he's saying. And I think that sort of picture captured the importance that she was there, making sure that he said the right things and. Um, yeah, that was an important part of his life. One of the things that I found most interesting in uh, your biography of Paisley were the American influences. Well, you say there he's, he's, he's very much uh, a North of Ireland Protestant. You do see the, the American influences there as well. What were they on him? Well, it's Bob Jones, really. Bob Jones, um, Baptist. And again, this is one of the, you know, strange aspects of Paisley's... Uh, religious career. I mean, he was a free Presbyterian. He claimed to be part of the, the Presbyterian tradition. And, his, you know, his, his church did follow, by and large, the basic tenets of the Presbyterian church. But he did also have, like, um, baptism, which is unknown, or unknown in, in the Presbyterian church. Bob Jones, a Baptist, also a racist, in, in one of the most racist states in the United States, still is a racist state. And uh, he got an awful lot of assistance from evangelicals in that part of the United States, um, both financial help, they helped to build his church, physically, the Martyrs Memorial, that is. Um, and also they gave him, um, you know, sort of academic cover, if you like, I mean, if you look at his, uh, his qualifications, they're, they're somewhat questionable, to say the least. Uh, he went to a very, you know, questionable Bible college. Uh, some people have raised all sorts of doubts about whether he was really qualified to be a preacher. Bob Jones solved, solved all those problems for him and also helped him to build the church, the Massive Martyrs Memorial Church in, in, in Belfast. So that was important for him. I, I think that's... That mark is an embarrassment to a, to a certain extent, you know, because Bob Jones is regarded as a racist and his 
only very recently that um, black students were allowed into Bob Jones University. Nonetheless, there was still a, an atmosphere of racism and sort of right-wing American populist type of politics there. And Paisley has, has, um, has somehow survived that or did survive it at that time. Ian Paisley became known, first of all, as a firebrand preacher with an emphasis on kind of religious questions, but he became political leader in the 1960s mm associated with kind of militant loyalism and especially well throughout the 1960s but especially with the advent of the civil rights movement in the late 1960s can you talk about that process and what was his position on the civil rights movement and how did he become such a prominent kind of loyalist leader well because uh the direction that terence O'Neill was taking unionism was setting you know alarm bells ringing in, in the unionist community they saw this uh, softening of the attitudes towards uh, nationalism as a dangerous thing, uh, that it would uh, weaken resolution, it would uh, undermine the constitutional position of Northern Ireland uh, as part of the United Kingdom, it would lead to a loss of political power, uh, and for all of these reasons, you know, Paisley was there leading the opposition to begin with the civil rights movement, uh, which was asking for very basic reforms in terms of voting reforms and housing reforms and employment reforms and what have you. These were regarded as very dangerous uh, demands which could undermine the integrity of the Northern Ireland state. And Paisley was there voicing opposition to it, saying that this was a road that would lead in one direction and one direction only, and that was towards the United Ireland and to the undermining of the Protestant state and the position of the Protestant religion in, in Ireland. Uh, and he became a very powerful voice, uh, arguing, you know, uh, in a very eloquent and forceful way, uh, persuaded an awful lot of ordinary Protestants to throw their lot in with him. That that's, was the basis of his power. How much culpability do you think that Paisley had for the violence that erupted in the late 60s? Was it credible for him to disassociate himself from the people who were inspired by his rhetoric? and sometimes very closely associated with him. Well, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that Paisley was up to his eyeballs in all the various efforts to undermine Terence O'Neill, and th these took various forms. You've got to remember there was uh, the first bombs that uh, exploded during the Northern Ireland Troubles were in April 1969, and they were set by loyalists in, in parts of County Down meant to persuade people that they were really the work of the IRA when they, of course, were not. Uh, Paisley was somehow conveniently in jail when, when this happened, but there's absolutely no doubt that the people who were involved in that, people like Sammy Stevenson and John McKay, were all allies and con confidants of, of Paisley, and that um, directly or indirectly, his hand and his influence was there, and you know, those were the first acts of violence in 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 the Northern Ireland Troubles, and you know, Paisley was part of that. The Burntollet March, uh, which was, you know, when you look back at the at, at the history of the Troubles, I think most most historians will now agree that the Burntollet March was an extraordinarily important moment, where the idea of reforming the Northern Ireland state was replaced by the idea that the only way you could change things was, was to overthrow it. It laid the basis for the provisional IRA in a sense. And to remind you what the Bentolet March was, you had students um, wanting to uh, repeat one of the experiences, one of the famous experiences of the American Civil Rights March, a civil rights campaign, and lead a march right across the, the length and breadth of Northern Ireland from Belfast to Derry. Derry, of course, was regarded as the cockpit of discrimination. Um, and uh, on the way, they were ambushed by loyalists who were led by Major Ronald Bunting, who was Paisley's sidekick. The march was ambushed. Police more or less stood by while the, the students were, were attacked and pelted with rocks and beaten with, with cudgels and thrown into a river and what have you. And it was at that moment that the idea of reforming the Northern Ireland state died, I think and set the, um, the tone for the emergence later that year uh, of the Provisional IRA after the events of August 1969. So Paisley was there. Paisley op opposed the march. Paisley's 
uh, associates and confidants, people like Bunting and McCabe, were part of the opposition, part of the organization against the, the students' march. They were part of the uh, plot to, to uh, bomb reservoirs in, in Northern Ireland to make it appear as if the IRA was, was uh, once again in action. That was all associated with Paisley. Without Paisley, would this have happened? Who knows? It's possible that it would never have happened. But he was there and he was responsible for it. And in, in, in that sense, he, he, he bears a huge amount of responsibility for the, the outbreak of the troubles in August 1969. And again, if you look at what happened in August 69, look at the people who were involved on the loyalist side in attacking Catholic homes. And there they are, people like John McKay, who was, you know, a very close associate of Paisley prominent in, in the various uh, acts of violence and, and petrol bombing and shooting and killing that was going on at that time. So Paisley's mark was all over the start of the troubles. You know, it's interesting though to, I think, tease out like what Paisley's followers thought of the civil rights movement and what they thought they were doing. Like for example, Gregory Campbell, who later on became a very prominent DUP Paisley politician in Derry said that the, the civil rights movement was demonstrating for rights that he didn't have as a working class Protestant, and he saw it as some sort of cover for a plot that was really to un overthrow the state. How do you think like Paisley's followers saw the situation? Why did he have such appeal, you know, at that time? Well, you know, I, I, I was a student at that time, and I was part of the, the civil rights movement in the sense that, you know, we, we had this group called People's Democracy at, at, uh, at Queen's, and, you know, we, we had some of the very first marches. Uh, for civil rights were, were students and led by people, people's democracy people. And we would go down to the Unionist Party headquarters. So we're, during this early period of 19, in, in 1969, there were various crisis meetings uh, leading to the eventual resignation of, of Terence O'Neill. And we, we would go down there, sort of like in a, in a, a spirit of, of missionary zeal, if you like, to try to reach out to ordinary Unionists, ordinary Protestants who would be outside the Glen Gould Street headquarters, barracking and, and, and shouting and basically supporting Paisley against, against Terence O'Neill. And we would try to, you know, have conversations with them about, um, you know, what the civil rights movement was really about. It was about basic rights, like housing, like employment. And we would say to them, what sort of house do you live in? And they, you know, lived in Sandy Road, which was very close to the Unionist Party headquarters. And the houses in Sandy Row were no better, in fact, in many cases worse than the houses on the Fourth Row. You know, outside toilets, um, no bathrooms inside, uh, two up, two down, uh, very basic, very poor, unhygienic, uh, poor jobs, no voting rights because they weren't property owners. So they were all victims of the same sort of uh, uh, discrimination as uh, Catholics were suffering. And it was just impossible to, to have a conversation about it. With them, there was just there was a there was a blank stare when you tried to 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 raise this sort of issue. No, it's nothing to do with that. They, they are the enemy. They are trying to overthrow Ulster. They are trying to get us all into a united Ireland. You couldn't. You really couldn't reach out. You, there was there was it was almost impossible to have uh, a rational conversation with them and say, look, actually, you know. A lot of what the civil rights movement is looking for, it's, you need it as well. You know, it, it was a waste. It was a waste of uh, a waste of time, a waste of effort. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting to me. You know, this mindset, but I suppose you know it's incumbent on us uh, to understand it. And I suppose is it driven by fear? Is that what what drives that mindset? It, it's it is very difficult to understand what it's about. It's um, you know. Um, at the end of the day, it's 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 down to bigotry. You know, it's it's um, and you know you have the same phenomenon over here in the United States. You know, with the white attitudes towards the black population, there's an irrationality there which is in, almost impossible to to overcome. And it was the same. You know, the comparisons are, are not exactly the same, but they're pretty similar. As you know, in Northern Ireland, that. Um, attitudes on the part of um, ordinary working class unionists and Protestants to their Catholic neighbours were racist, essentially. And there's no way that you could have a rational conversation to overcome that. And um, that was essentially part of the problem, was that you were dealing with a really racist society at the end of the day. Now, Ed, we might move on to the Democratic Unionist Party, um, yeah. the party that Paisley set up in 1971. 
when the violence had really kicked off and was very, very serious in Northern Ireland. On your website, The Broken Elbow, I've, I've read some of the articles that you've written about somebody that most people wouldn't be aware of or wouldn't have heard of, uh, Desmond Bowell, and also mm. in your biography too. What type of influence do you think somebody like Bowell would have had over Paisley and his political views at that time? He had a lot of influence, uh, you know, right up to the very end. Uh, Paisley would, would often, you know, go to see Desmond and, and talk to him about, you know, political events and get his advice. He was very influential at the, at the outset of Paisley's career. He was himself, he was a dairy, dairy man. And uh, he, he got involved in, in sort of fundamental, he was a barrister, of course, as well. Uh, he got involved in very sort of um, weird causes at, at the time in the 1950s and early 1960s. In one particular case, um, there was a, um, a, a divorce between a, uh, a Catholic man in Fethard-on-Sea and his Protestant wife. And uh, the child was taken by, I think it was taken by the, the husband. And Bowl tried to intervene to try to persuade the parent who had the child to hand it over to the Protestant parent so that he could be brought up as, um, as a Protestant. And it became a cause celebre at the time and it led to a boycott of Protestants in Fethard-on-Sea and, uh, um, you know, made, made Bowl uh, a bit of a personality and that led him into Paisley's orbit. And um, that's when the relationship began and Paisley uh, regarded Bowl very much as a, a friend and also an advisor. And when Paisley decided to set up the, the Democratic Unionist Party, basically at Bowles' instigation, um, that this happened. You know, Bowl was 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 there at his side when DUP was formed. He was the one who advised uh, Paisley to change the name from Protestant Unionist to Democratic Unionist, so that it would have a wide wider appeal amongst the. Protestant population. And he was by his side during some of the most important events of, of that particular time. And it was a very famous occasion in which um, uh, he and, and Paisley met up with a group of journalists in the Europa Hotel. And this would have been November, I think, November 1971. Uh, Liam Hurricane RT was there, and Vincent Brown, who was, I think, working for the Irish Press, was there. And they talked all through the night and it, it ended in the most extraordinary way with Paisley being persuaded that uh, the idea of uh, a united Ireland uh, in which the, the Catholic Church would not have the sort of influence that it had in the 26 county state as it existed then uh, was something which, you know, he could possibly live with. And he gave an interview to RTE and he gave an interview to... Uh, to uh, Vincent Brown. Uh, I think there was another guy there from the Independent, I forget his name, but anyway, got a huge amount of, of coverage in, 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 the, in, in, the, in the media at that time and sort of led to speculation that either Paisley has gone mad or he's like entirely changed his views. And of course, he realized very quickly uh, when dawn broke uh, the next day that he had made a huge mistake and he, he withdrew from it and uh, retracted an awful lot of what he'd said. But that was down uh, or regarded as being mostly the responsibility of Desmond Bowl. And Desmond, you know, as I said, had, uh, had, had been a major influence in formation of the DUP. That sort of marked really the end of his public uh, uh, association with Desmond Bolt, although the pair continued to meet and Paisley would continue to go to him for advice on things. But uh, that was a, an extraordinary episode, but it raised all sorts of weird questions about Paisley's judgment. And this, you know, that what, what persuaded him to do this when he must have known, you know, and it wouldn't take, you know, much sense to realize this, that so the, the what he was suggesting here was political suicide. And of course he had to, be, he had to like do an immediate U-turn, you know, in the, in the days after that. And, uh, but it, it stands out as, as, a, as an episode which raises really, you know, big questions about Paisley's judgment in all of this, you know? Um, well, we don't know the answers yet. We still don't know the answers to that. Well, it does present us to the question of, 
whether Paisley in private was much less sectarian and more conciliatory person than the public image would have us believe. Yeah, it does raise that question, but also raise the question of how much of it was, uh, was, was just an act, you know, how much of it was uh, pretense, was that this is what he had to do in order to, to build up his church, to build up his political following. To what extent did he mean all of this stuff? When you look at the end of his career and the contrast between the beginning of his career, you know, he ended up sharing power with former chief of staff of the, of the IRA, Martin McGuinness, you know, who was nonetheless at the time that the talks were taking place that led to the formation of the, the, the government with Paisley and, and, the, and the provost. You know, McGuinness was uh, Northern commander of the IRA. He was in charge of all the IRA's operations in the six counties and, uh, and, and responsible for all of the violence that, that took place, you know, and had been for many years. Paisley knew that. And, and yet, you know, he was quite prepared to put that aside and go into government with him. And I think that shocked, shocked an awful lot of his supporters. And I don't think they've ever really recovered from it. And I can remember, you know, talking to DUP people in the wake of all of that. And when they saw the television pictures of Paisley, admittedly not sitting beside, but sitting at an angle uh, with Jerry Adams to announce the formation of their government, the shock was enormous to the grassroots. And I, I, you know, I, I don't think the DUP has ever really recovered. And, you know, there was a, a leadership in the DUP which was going to do well no matter what happened. They would become um, members of the assembly. They would become ministers. They would have salaries. They would have special advisors. They would have chauffeurs. They would have drivers. They'd have this, they'd have that. The deal made an awful lot of sense to them. But to the ordinary DUP person who saw this volt farce on the part of Paisley, it was a shock from which... I don't think they've ever really recovered. And I can remember at that time going back to, to Northern Ireland talking to uh, DUP people that I'd known for, for a long time. And they were, they were just like, they were not sideways. They just could not deal with it. What does that say about Paisley and Paisleyism? One can understand, you know, the, the Robinsons and the Dodds and various other people that we know who've risen to the top of the DUP. They're professional politicians. Uh, they're seeking office, they're seeking power, and so on and so forth. But the average DUP supporter was almost like a member of a cult, a religion. They really believed in everything that the organization stood for, and they believed that there were certain steps that would never be taken, certain concessions that could never, could never be taken. And here they were, looking, looking at, uh, you know, while the media were raving about uh, Martin McGuinness and, and Ian Paisley sitting together, grinning on steps of Stormont, they were in a state of absolute shock and horror. And I don't think most of them have recovered from that, to be honest with you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, though. I mean, you talk about his true believers and the, especially the people who combined kind of political and religious belief in him. But kind of another slightly different group, I think, were the loyalist paramilitaries, you know, the really militant loyalists, the ones mm. who used violence. And the impression I've always got from loyalist testimony is that they never really cared for Paisley all that much. They never saw him as really one of them. And, like, they didn't think he was really sincere, I think. Uh, they regarded him as a coward. Uh, that, was, that was their real complaint about him, that he was quite prepared to uh, urge people to do this, that and the other, but would make sure that he was nowhere in sight when the consequences had to be faced up to, you know, and um, I remember Tommy Little, who was a former leader of the UDA on the Shankill, uh, told me the story about um, August 1969, when the troubles really started, if you like, and you had uh, uh, big riots, and gun battles taking place on the peace line between the Falls and the Shankill Road, you know, ending up with um, uh, Bombay Street, for example, being burned to, to the ground and people being killed and so on and so forth. And um, he said there was, he saw Paisley surrounded by a bunch of women and he was trying to like force his way through the women, but not with, with, with a great deal of vigor, saying, I have to go over there and, and help. And they were pulling him back saying, Dr. Paisley, you can't go there. Uh, you'll get killed if you go, you know. And this was this huge, big man Know, towering over these wee women, could easily have forced, forced his way 
uh, passed them and, and made his way to the scene of the action, but didn't. And um, Tommy took from that, that Paisley essentially deep at heart was a coward. And that's the image which has stuck with uh, the loyalist paramilitaries down the years. He was strong with the words, but weak with the action. And for example, during the UWC strike in 1974, he managed to absent himself and go to Canada during the most crucial period, you know, uh, had some excuse about family business that had to be uh, settled in, in Canada, his brother living out there. May have been true, may not have been true, but uh, that was the wrong time to go. Uh, and that's the sort of attitude that the uh, loyalist paramilitaries have towards deep suspicion, a, a belief that he was a coward, belief that uh, he was on the make, um, unreliable and someone to be avoided. Now, in the 1980s, after the Anglo-Irish Agreement, which, of course, he was ferociously against, and he made a famous speech outside City Hall in Belfast, but he, mm. he did kind of flirt with setting up his own paramilitary organisation called Ulster Resistance uh, for a time, didn't he? Yes, but if you look at the history of that, he soon retreated from it when it became clear that it was really intent on doing serious stuff. If you remember the story about Ulster Resistance, um, together with the UDA and the UVF, they organised a bank robbery in Ported Down, which netted, I think, three or 400,000 pounds. And they used that money to buy arms in, in via South Africa. It came from the, it was very complicated, but it came from, the, the arms came from the Middle East, but the deal was sort of uh, facilitated by South African intelligence. And they brought all, all, all this uh, weaponry over, uh, over to Northern Ireland. The Ulster resistance were, of course, was the DUP's um, armed wing in a sense, you know? Um, if you remember those days, uh, they were wearing red berries and marching up and down streets of Border Down, and, uh, loyalist areas in various parts of Northern Ireland. The action was supposed to come via the, this armed shipment. And when Paisley found out about the armed shipment, you know, he distanced himself at the speed of knots from Ulster resistance. And again, you know, the message was, you know, Paisley talks the talk, but he will never walk the walk. And I think that cost him at the end of the day when, when you know, he articulated his opposition to uh, the peace deal that Trimble made with Sinn Féin and the British government and the Irish government. Uh, people took that with a very large pinch of salt. And what I mean by people is loyalist base. Uh, so, you know, you, on the one hand, yes, Paisley could be branded a coward. But at the same time, you could argue that that was a good thing for Northern Ireland because if Paisley had really been up to the mark in relation to that type of activity, Northern Ireland's history would have been very, very different. You would not have seen, you know, it took someone like uh, a Paisley of that ilk to do a deal with, with Sinn Féin, to do a deal with Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness. You know? uh, a tougher, a more principled loyalist leader would never have done it. You know, it's interesting though, I mean, regarding the politics, throughout the Troubles there were various attempts, as you know, Ed, to solve it to, on a political basis. And you had the Sunningdale Agreement, which was brought down by the Loyalist Strike in 1974, the Anglo-Irish Agreement and so on. But very much this idea of power sharing. And this is also, of course, the linchpin of the Good Friday Agreement. And throughout the period, like Paisley was, Paisley's political position, I think, was returned to pre-1969, wasn't it? It was just that nothing needs to change in Northern Ireland. That, that's right. Yes, um, that, that was his attitude throughout. But, you know, if you really believe that, why would you get involved in talks about um, a settlement unless you knew you knew what the terms you you know when you, when you agree to play a football match uh, you play by the rules you know and the rules are you don't foul and you, you this is how you score a goal and uh, this is uh, how this is done and how that's done you know you you follow what everyone else is doing and and you agree to the, the terms of, of the game if Paisley really was opposed deep down to sharing power with uh, nationalists or Catholics to moderating his views, he would never have had any discussions. He would never have got involved in talks at all. He would have always been on the outside shouting sell out, but no, he got involved. And when you get involved in a process such as the one that led to Good Friday Agreement or the St. Andrew's Agreement, if you get involved in that process, you know where it's gonna go you know, you're going to have to make uh, concessions. You know, you're going to have to bend this and bend that principle. 
And, you know, you're going to have to, at the end of the day, share power with someone who's your enemy. I mean, he knew very well, dealing with people like Jerry Adams, who's been on the Army Council of the IRA since, you know, 1978. Uh, Martin McGuinness, who's been Northern Commander of the IRA for previous 10, 15 years. Um, he knows this. He knows, he knows these facts, or he knew these facts. Yeah. And, and um, if he was really, really opposed to the notion of having anything to do with these people, he would never have got involved in the process. But he did get involved in the process. And as soon as he got involved in the process, and it was just a question of how and when a deal was going to be made. And that's exactly what happened. But Ed, why do you think Paisley survived for so long? And why do you think he saw off so many other unionist leaders and outmaneuvered them too? Because, because they were all scared of him, uh, because he had this uh, reputation of all, always being right in terms of like uh, spotting a sellout. He appeared to most of his followers for most of the time to be trenchant, uh, to be thoroughly principled. He could command enormous uh, loyalty amongst his followers. He had a huge amount of support within the Northern Ireland Protestant community. So he was a very powerful figure. And for all of these reasons, I think you know, he was successful. It took the passage of time and events, I think, for a, a rather different uh, image of Ian Paisley to come to the fore. The one that we now, I think, would now choose to regard him as being someone who was at the end of the day prepared to moderate and to compromise. But the, the early Paisley in particular, uh, you know, was a very different kettle of fish altogether as far as, uh, you know, loyalist politics was concerned. Ed, I'm just thinking that for most of the 70s and 80s and even the 90s, if you were to ask people in Britain to name a single Irish politician, the only person, the vast majority of them could name was Ian Paisley. And yeah. they couldn't really name anyone else. How was Paisley perceived in Britain? Oh, as um, I, I think he was probably uh, perceived as being very Irish to begin with. Um, you know, there's, there's no phenomenon in British society that was equivalent to him. Uh, he was a throwback to a different age, dangerous, strange, sometimes comical, all of these things. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, he became a bit of a hero, didn't he? I mean, he, you know, he did the deal with the provosts. He brought peace to Northern Ireland. He brought an end to the troubles. Uh, so I think you probably remembered, no matter what the early memories and the early image of Paisley was, at the end of the day, you know, he's, he's the guy who maybe, you know, deserves the most credit for bringing the troubles to an end because without, if Paisley, if Paisley opposed the deal, whatever the deal was going to be, it was always in danger of falling. It was always in danger of collapsing, always in danger of being undermined. When Paisley put his name to the final agreement, then that was the end of the troubles because there was no one who could out Paisley Paisley. Um, so that was his value. And I, I rather think that's the way he's going to be remembered by most historians. I mean, I think, as I've tried to suggest, the picture is a wee bit more complicated than that. But the end of the day, people will see Ian Paisley as the man who brought the troubles to an end. Well, I remember watching footage of one of David Trimble's election counts, and it was time when Trimble would have been first minister. And it's just enormous violence coming from the DUP supporters at the election count. And I think he's, he has to be dragged into his car, him and his wife, and his wife looked really distressed, trying to keep these people away from him. And it just it did seem incredibly hypocritical to think that the same DUP party would be doing exactly what Trimble would be doing in a yeah. couple of years' time. Of course. Of course, what you could see, you could say that about other, other participants in the Troubles. I mean, Sinn Féin, for example, would attack the, the SDLP for making deals with unionists, and yet they made exactly the same deals themselves with unionists. You know, that's politics, I guess. Um, and, you know, I think most people will not complain because the end product was the end of the troubles, the end of the violence. People weren't being killed. There was a certain amount of stability. You know, it's no guarantee that the troubles won't somehow uh, re-emerge in some shape or form, but um, they're over. And they're over because um, people who had built their reputations and their support 
on uh, their uh, willingness never, or their unwillingness to compromise, ended up compromising. Paisley amongst them, and the provost as well. I mean, if you had said in 1969, August 1969, when you know Bombay Street was on, on fire and gunfire was echoing around the streets of West Belfast, that this, this, this violence, this uh, political turmoil in Northern Ireland would end with Ian Paisley and um, the leadership of the IRA sitting down together and sharing power at Stormont. They'd say, you're absolutely bananas, you're mad, you're crazy. But that's how it ended. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And that's how Paisley will be, I think, remembered as, as a good guy at the end of the day. He did, he did the right thing at the end of the day. Just as uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, who, you know, between them, I don't know how many deaths they are responsible for directly or indirectly, but a huge number of deaths um, will also be regarded in the same favorable light. You know, they did the deal, they ended the thing, um, and we're now living in a, a better place as a result. I think it's funny about the likes of Paisley is that in some ways, I think for people from the South, with all the sectarian talk and his, his record, he didn't seem as sectarian as the likes of a Willie McRae or other people in his party. And he seemed more personable and uh, more humorous than, than a lot of his party colleagues. Well, yeah, that's because they, they tend to see Paisley in his recent manifestations rather than his early manifestations, you know? Uh, uh, the difference is that um, someone like Willie McRae, who actually, you know, has ended up being barracked himself by, uh, you know, his own uh, right wing in the DUP because uh, he opposed the deal that Paisley, initially opposed the deal that Paisley signed up for and then changed his mind and um, came under enormous amount of criticism and stick from, from loyalists in his, his part of Derry, South Derry as a result. They're, they're not alone, you know. Um, people change, people uh, modify their views. Paisley is regarded now in a very favorable light. Does he deserve that? Well, yes and no. Yes, he did end the thing, but he also started it, you know? Uh, so how do you square that circle? Now, Ed, you mentioned before, in the context of the DUP's compromises over the last 10 or 15 years, that the party's base was dismayed and shocked by this. Now, with Dean Paisley dead, and with you know the situation in Northern Ireland again, somewhat in flux as a result of Brexit and so on, you know, Paisley is dead, but is Paisleyism dead? You know, this combination of kind of religious and political zeal on, on the side of the loyalist people. Is that, is, is that in the past? Is, is that credible in today's Northern Ireland? It's difficult to say, you know, I'm not living there now. So, you know, I, I don't experience it in the way that I did when I was living there. So uh, I'm really possibly the last person you should ask that question to. But um, uh, I do, I do have a feeling though that there is a fundamental change underneath um underneath the surface which is that you know catholics are getting a better deal in northern ireland than they ever did in the past support therefore for bringing down the state or for opposing the state uh, is much less acute than it used to be that has an equal uh, beneficial impact upon the unionist population in the sense that they regard nationalists uh, in in a, a much more sympathetic light or much more favorable light than they would have done during the troubles and i think that all you know adds together to 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 make the situation very different than it was when the troubles were at, at their worst and therefore the likelihood that it it could you know reignite into the sort of uh, uh, violence that we we was we, we have for so many years i think it's very very unlikely now I think essentially it's it, it, it's over. It's over because most people want it to be over. Um, they may still have huge differences about um, the the end product, but as long as they're um, they're not killing each other and not fighting, I, I think people, most people will be happy with, with whatever is agreed in terms of their political future. Do you think Paisley was bitter with the way his 
leadership of both the DUP and the Free Presbyterian Church ended? I think he was, yes, obviously. I mean, it was his church uh, and it was his party. Uh, he had created both of them. Neither would have existed without him. Neither would have grown uh, to, the, to the, the, the extent and to the influence that they, they did have without him. Then he's rejected. And I think the, 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 the blow that hurt the most was uh, being turfed out of his own church, church which he had founded. And um, I, th I think that, that really, really hurt, hurt him so badly. I don't think he ever really recovered from it. Uh, the political side was something he could deal with, that's politics, but religion was um, what he was really at the end of the day all about. This was his church, he had created it. The congregations existed because of him. The following existed because of him. And here they were at the end of the day saying, you sold us out, out to go. You're no longer one of us. Uh, get, get you out from amongst us. Uh, that hurt, I think that terribly, that hurt him terribly. And um, I, I don't think he ever really recovered from it. It was really, uh, the church was really what he was all about at the end of the day, uh, much more than the politics. The idea that he could actually be thrown out, rejected by his own people. I think, I think that, that really, I think that almost killed him. Well, Ed, thank you very, very much for coming on okay. today. We really appreciate your time. And you can find Ed's work on thebrokenelbow.com. That's his website. So you can listen to this and previous episodes of the show on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Show, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, my name is Cahill Brennan. On behalf of myself, my co-host, John Dorney from theirishstory.com, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.